Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I am joined one dizzying week into this NBA season by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Your dream come true, Wolfond. A James Harden trade. I, I need to make clear, this is, not, this is not a James Harden emergency trade podcast. You are vehemently opposed to a James Harden emergency pod. Sorry, emergency trade podcast. But we are here to talk about the James Harden trade, among other things that we're going to get to. It will be, it's a line item on our agenda today, but that is not why we're convening to pod. So you do have to, though, at one point, a friend of the show, the great Alex Wong, did request that you at some point uh, this season on the show give him the list of names that you feel are worthy of emergency pod material. And when we say emergency pod, that means we are the day of, if we're both available, doing a podcast strictly on that trade. Like we're not including it in an episode while we talk about other stuff. All we're doing that episode is talking about the trade the the way we did for the Dame trade, for example. So at some point this season, Alex wants your list of the guys in the NBA right now that you feel are worthy of emergency podcast services if they get traded we'll definitely do that at some point but suffice it to say james harden is not on that list i've made that clear i will say again we're a week into the season cash this has got to be the fastest that any one of our bold predictions has already been eliminated from the board because one of mine you may recall And I did say this was probably the boldest among my bold predictions, but one of them was that Harden would eventually be traded not to the Clippers. And, uh, well, so much for that. He is a Los Angeles Clipper. Cash, you wrote about this trade. So I'm going to give you the floor, first of all, just to lay out all of the moving parts here. uh, Because, again, you have that organized in your brain, I think, in a a better way than I probably do. Um, And also, you probably organized your thoughts about it in a way that I haven't fully. I don't actually have too many thoughts about this. I feel like I'll have more once I actually watch the Clippers play, see what they look like with James Harden. But, you know, my immediate reaction is kind of just almost a shrug of the shoulders. Like, not that it's not a a good trade for all parties involved. I actually think everybody is basically getting what they want here. But... It's not especially surprising, and I don't know, again, that I have that much to say about it for now. we got to wait and see what the Clippers look like. we got to wait and see what the Sixers wind up doing with the draft compensation they've just received. But I'll kick it to you, Cash. What do you think about all of the moving parts here? So to start with the moving parts, in case anyone isn't already aware, the Clippers get James Harden, P.J. Tucker, and Phil... Leap Petrusev, who I don't think is going to play. And they lose Robert Covington, Nick Libatou, Marcus Morris, and KJ Martin, who all go to the Sixers. In addition, the Clippers traded a couple second rounders, one in 2024 and one in 2029. They traded a 2028 first rounder, unprotected, a 2029 pick swap to the Sixers, and also... They sent a they sent a 2027 pick swap to OKC 
who in turn flipped one of their many picks, a 2026 first rounder to Philly. Now the protections on that Thunder pick, I mean, people are probably already confused. The protections on that Thunder pick going to Philly is it's going to be the least attractive of their picks that year will go to Philly in 2026. The Thunder have a bunch of picks in 2026. I mean, they've got uh, their own first rounder. They got a Clippers pick. They have a top four protected Rockets pick. They also have a bunch of additional first rounders that they could have that year because of rollover protections from prior years. So the Thunder have a lot to choose from that year. Philly will get the worst of the Thunder's picks that year. And in exchange, the Thunder kind of are betting on the downside, I guess you can say, of the Clippers four years from now in 2027 when either Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are really old or long gone. That's the Thunder side of it. Obviously, we're here to talk today more about the Clippers and Sixers side. In terms of my organized thoughts, I have many. I don't think we'll have time to get to all of them, but if I could try to kind of give you the Coles notes of my thoughts and the Coles notes of what I wrote about yesterday in trying to break down this trade on the Score app... I think for the Clippers, I don't want to shit on it too much because like I, I do think they got better. Um, I think the P.J. Tucker acquisition in a roundabout way actually leaves them better equipped to potentially, you know, if they were going to match up with Denver. Now, I'm not saying they are going to beat Denver or that they're in a good position to beat Denver. I'm simply saying they're better positioned to match up with them, maybe give them a slightly tougher uh, victory than they would have been yesterday because I think Tucker's had some success guarding up against Jokic with some help behind him. Also, I just think he gives them an ability to play five out on both ends. Um, but from the Harden perspective, yes, he makes them better, but he doesn't make them better or raise their ceiling to the level that you would normally assume a guy of his statistical production would. Like, if someone just told you, hey, there's this fringe contender to genuine contender out there, and they trade for a guy who led the league in assists last season while averaging 21 points on 61% true shooting, you'd be like, oh, giddy up, that team, like a juggernaut. But we know that it doesn't necessarily add up that way when you add hard into this team. One, like we don't have to rehash all the things we've talked about the last like two years when it comes to James Harden's inability to blow by defenders and create advantages as consistently as he once did, and how much more he relies on that step back three now. And when it's not, when it is falling, it can look great as it did a couple times in the playoffs last year. And when it's not, it can look really bad. Even if you look at this and say, well, he'll have worse defenders on him now because the best defenders on the other team, the best perimeter defenders and wing stoppers will be on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Yeah, fair enough. But I, this isn't a case of, oh, James Harden has trouble blowing by guys because he's always facing the toughest defenders. This is more of like a physical limitation father time thing that I don't think is going to change because he's got weaker defenders on him. I think that's an issue for him. And I also think that though he does make them better and a little more dynamic, I don't think James Harden is good enough anymore to justify the number of possessions he's going to take away from Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and the amount of times he's going to take the ball out of their hands. Like, the Clippers have spent the last, what, four years more, basically, since they got Kawhi and PG, looking for a point guard, a table setter to kind of like get their offense flowing and get the ball to their top two guys in the right spots, play sound basketball. Like, James Harden really isn't that guy. And he obviously, he's a great playmaker. Again, he led the league in assists last year, double-digit assists the last three seasons. But like, he's not that guy. 
He's not a table setter for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And I have a real hard time believing he's going to buy in to just being that table setter that they kind of need him to be for Kawhi and PG. Because for my money, like every possession that's out of their hands and in his hands isn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's often a bad thing. Here's a part I've gone back and forth on. Because on one hand, I look at James Harden and his play style. I look at the fact that Doc Rivers, who coached him last season, uh, told Dan Patrick just last week that after not making the All-Star team last year, James Harden went to him and asked to come off the bench because he wanted more of the ball again. He wanted to like put up numbers and dominate the ball the way he used to and score the way he used to. And Doc Rivers' theory was, well, it coincided like immediately with him being snubbed from the All-Star team and like Harden felt a certain way about that. I have a hard time believing that now, like just months, like less than a year later, he's all of a sudden back to being okay with being more of a facilitator and this team first guy. Now, the flip side of that could be perhaps at this stage of his career, James Harden looks at it and says, look, if I'm going to be sacrificing my numbers, my scoring, my usage to play team first basketball, which isn't really what I want to do. Well, I might as well do it back home in LA. That's where I want to be. I feel like it gives me the best chance to win, whatever. And I, I'm at least putting it out there that it's possible he's thinking like that. And so this is the one place he'll actually be okay playing that way. But I still have a hard time believing. And if he's not okay playing that way, I, I just think he's going to take the ball out of Kawhi and PG's hands too often. I think there's a lot of redundancy there now with him and Russ. And listen, like say what you will about Russ, and we've said a lot, and I know it's a very small sample size, but through the first week and a little bit of this season, he was giving that team, a team with Kawhi and PG on it, what you want from your guard. Like, yeah, he was taking he was taking advantage of transition opportunities and pushing the pace a bit, but he was really striking a balance between finding his own offense and getting those guys going in a way that, quite frankly, I did not think Russell Westbrook was capable of striking. He was trading in a lot of his pull-up stuff for catch-and-shoot stuff. He was moving off the ball more than I've ever seen Russ move off the ball. He's traded in most of his above-the-break threes for corner threes this year. Like, I think Russ was giving them kind of what they need from that position, and I don't think James Harden's going to give them that. So, a very long way for me to say that, even though obviously they're more talented, I think if you look at their like top eight, top nine guys in the rotation, talent-wise, it's friggin' awesome. Like, almost as good as anyone's. They're better. They're more dynamic. They do have a higher ceiling. I just don't think James Harden moves the needle nearly as much as his statistical production would suggest he does. And then we also know about all the postseason demons. All right. So, yeah, I'm not going to unpack everything you said. Like, I agree with a lot of it. I think the really important thing is going to be, because you talk about the possessions where Harden has the ball and those being possessions in which he's taking the ball away from Kawhi and PG. If it doesn't get back to them. that's Those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And we have seen an engaged Harden when he embraces facilitator mode. He can be the guy who's delivering the ball to teammates in advantageous spots and helping them immensely to access easy offense. So I'm hoping to see that version of Harden you know, not monopolizing possessions, not taking possessions away from Kawhi and PG, but facilitating possessions for them. I think that's plausible. Like, part of me looks at this and thinks, you know, on the one hand, it seems like a very easy stylistic fit for Harden because the Clippers 
in many ways, already play the way that he likes to play. On the other hand, like there's a downside to that, right? Because I can't help but wonder whether him going there is going to make them lean further into some of their worst tendencies, like the iso ball, the soft switching that I feel like they just do way too much of, you know, playing slow when I feel like they, like Westbrook, the, the injection of pace that he's given them, I think has actually been hugely beneficial. And I say this all the time about Westbrook, right? Like talking about what the Russ experience actually is. It's like, he's probably going to make your half court offense worse, but he's also going to make sure that you play in the half court as infrequently as possible. And I just really like the pace that they've played with when he's been on the floor. And we know Harden's tendency can be to kind of slow things down and to play a lot more methodically. So I'm, I'm hoping to see them kind of find a happy medium there where they can play to Harden's strengths without sort of being consumed by them. But I think regardless, like the, the partnership can definitely be a cooperative one. I don't think you're going to see a lot of Harden being used in actions with Kawhi and PG. Cause if defenses are switching that it's like, you've already talked about Harden's limitations, kind of like blowing by guys getting into the paint, or, you know, beating anybody off the bounce, even opposing bigs. Well, it's like, if it's an opposing wing switching onto him and especially the kinds of opposing wings that are going to be guarding Kawhi and Paul George, that's going to be even more stark. But again, if you're running off ball actions for those guys and having Harden with the ball able to initiate possessions and facilitate, then I think that could all go quite smoothly. The offense I'm quite confident is going to be excellent. Like I'm not super worried about that. Um, there's a lot still to figure out, but I'm, you know, this to me puts them kind of in that second tier of contenders in the West, which is basically like a big group of teams below the Nuggets who look like far and away the best team, not only in the West, but in the NBA right now. So look, I, they, they did that without trading any significant rotation pieces. I, you know, I was kind of high on what KJ Martin could bring them just as a really bouncy, athletic, young dude that, you know, they don't really have that type of player. But, you know, again, I don't think it's a huge loss and Covington and Batum are over the hill. Like the draft equity just sort of is what it is. They're all in on trying to win now. So I think it's it's totally justifiable and it has a chance to to pay big dividends. So I like it from their perspective and I like it from Philly's perspective. I didn't think that they were ultimately going to be able to get this much like two first rounders. And yeah, you mentioned like the heavy protections on the OKC first rounder that they're getting. Like, it's funny to, to look at this trade and think OKC was fine trading that first rounder in order to get the Clippers swap, right? They trade the 2026 first rounder to get the Clippers swap in 27 because they think that 2027 Clippers swap is going to be like more advantageous than just having the 2026 pick outright. And the Sixers obviously felt the opposite because they could have just gotten the Clippers swap, obviously if they wanted to, but they wanted the pick. And that's, that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, it's not necessarily for them, right? That's the big thing here is I think 
from the Sixers' perspective, this is ammo to potentially go and get a third guy. And we've already heard some rumblings about, you know, Zach Levine, uh, maybe OG Ananobi. And I think OG would be like the much better fit of those two guys. I think OG, gonna... OG should be the guy for them. Like whether that shakes out or not, but he should be. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing is, I mean, maybe they're looking at this and saying, we can just sign OG as a free agent in the offseason. You know, hell, hell with trading for him now. Like we will wait this out and we will sign him with our oceans of cap space, which we now have more of because we've gotten off the last year of that PJ Tucker contract with only expiring contracts coming back in return. Yeah. And, and I wrote about this in the piece too. So yeah, they PJ Tucker had an 11.5 ish million dollar player option for next season. And in getting rid of that, they took four expirings back. Now they can get with Embiid on the books, including Maxi's cap hold, some team options stuff. They can get to like $55 million in cap space. They can use $55 million in cap space before re-signing Tyrese Maxey. Okay. So they can, whether, you know, the free agents out there next summer, like um, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, DeMar DeRozan, Clay Thompson, among others. So they can definitely go to work in building the next kind of contender around Embiid and Maxey that should be good for a long time. But what I like about this move is that in addition to further carving out financial flexibility in the summer to continue to build and add to this team, the Sixers also now have more ammo to make a win-now trade in season. Because as much as we talk about next year, and okay, like OG is a perfect example. It's like, yeah, you could trade from and use some of those assets now, or you can just not use those assets, sign him outright, and then still have those assets to make another move later. We've also talked about like how much more patience does Joel Embiid have, right? Like, I also don't think you want to miss on a potential opportunity this season because you're holding out for the summer when we don't know how much more patience Joel Embiid has for this process. So what I like about this move is that they they have many options. Heck, they can make a win-now trade this season before the deadline and still have space after that to make a pretty significant move in the offseason. Like, you can look at it kind of either way. I would just say that I do still think there should be some sense of urgency. Not like they have to be all in right away, but there should be some sense of urgency still this season if the right opportunity presents itself to maximize this season and the present with Joel Embiid on the floor playing the way he is, as opposed to just saying, well, we can kind of remodel this thing in the summer because look, with how good Joel Embiid is, and you know, this is coming from someone, as you know, that takes great pleasure in clowning Joel Embiid's postseason resume. But I'll still say, for as good as Joel Embiid is right now, for what Tyrese Maxey is, and Tyrese Maxey on November 1st, 2023, is a better player than James Harden. I believe that. I don't think there's any doubt. Right. We're, we're going to get into talking about Maxi yes. and Embiid. Do yes. not worry. And and I think he's a better fit for Joel Embiid too. Like, yeah, look, the connection between Harden and Embiid was great last year. It's a big part of why Embiid had the season he had and also a big part of why James Harden led the league in assists. But Tyrese Maxey's like combination of speed, unreal shooting range, playmaking, like fits so perfectly with Embiid. They have this beautiful inside-out game on the offensive end. Those two guys alone, playing at the level they're currently playing at, give the Sixers the offensive floor of like a fringe contender. 
And we know Embiid is practically a top 10 defense unto himself. So yeah, waiting for the summer is like great and they can use that flexibility and they can build an even better team. But like these two guys being here give you a chance to be on the fringes of title contention right now, even with all the hardened drama that went on, even with trading him for a bunch of like reserves and rotation players, you're still at least on the fringes of title contention because these two guys are that good. Don't let this season pass by without at least trying to make one of those win now trades. Because like if they have to use those assets on Anunoby, even though they could have signed him outright in the offseason and they just have him this season, like that's okay. That's a good problem to have. You know what I mean? Like, and you yeah, could I still just, I just think it has to be for the right guy. Of and course. I honestly don't think Levine is the right guy. Like I, I, agree I would, with that. I agree. If I were a Sixers fan, I would prefer for them to pass on that and wait and see if something else, something better comes up down the road. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice piece of business for Philly. I honestly think they, in spite of not getting any serious, like, again, I, I think KJ Martin's interesting for them. I think Batum has a little bit left in the tank. Maybe Covington does too. Like, this actually does improve their depth slightly. So it's not like they got nothing in terms of rotation caliber players, but it's it's not a ton. And in spite of that, I still think they did better than I would have anticipated. And all of this is going to, like, this is a long-term play for them. It's not about improving their team right now, even though I think it does sort of incrementally because they traded a player who was giving them literally zero for three guys who could factor into their rotation in some form or fashion. Obviously, Tucker is also outbound, but I think they kind of, I think they're able to plug that gap reasonably well. You know, I don't think Batum, Covington, KJ Martin, none of those guys are like the level of defender that Tucker is at this point in time. But I don't think it's a huge drop off either. I think that that all makes sense basically for both sides and, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, makes you wonder why it didn't happen sooner, I suppose. But you know, the Clippers, they get what they want and they get to keep Terrence Mann after all that. Uh, Their most prized possession. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is going to be interesting them going into next offseason potentially with all of Kawhi, PG, and Harden as free agents. Don't know how that's going to shake out. But, I mean, we've we've seen Steve Ballmer's appetite for paying massive luxury tax bills and... He's probably going to be on the hook for a pretty sizable one. Yeah, and I I think the free agency part of it, just on the last point, is an important part of this because that kind of balance we talk about with Harden and whether, like you mentioned, what it's looked like when he has bought into playing that way. And I was talking about, you know, whether I believe he actually will. The fact that he's in a contract year also plays a part of it, right? Like, we are talking about a guy who, you know, rightly or wrongly feels he was done wrong by the Sixers. And according to Doc Rivers, also feels like him kind of sacrificing for the team first style of play cost him an all-star spot last year. Like, I'm I'm really curious to see how he approaches this because does he learn from all of this and maybe see it as like, look, at this stage of my career, I actually have to prove I can play this way on a winning team in order to get that next contract? Or does he see it the other way where it's like, I got screwed in Philly, should have just done things my way, lost an awesome part, and now screw it, forget this team, like I'm going balls to the wall, that's how I think I'm going to get my one last contract. I, I'm interested in seeing 
how he thinks he has to approach it from that perspective. Yeah, because I think we both are pretty clear on what he would actually have to play like in order to prove yes. that he's worthy of it. And it's yeah. being more deferential, yep. proving that he can play alongside not one, but two stars who are now higher than him on the pecking order who are better than him right like this is i don't know it's gonna be uh maybe a challenge for him maybe an ego check but i think he's capable of it it's just you know the self-awareness piece is always an important part of the equation so we'll see this is already way longer than i wanted to spend talking about this trade but let's leave that there we'll take the break and we'll come back and talk about all the things that i really wanted to talk about you know what this was wolf this was an unofficial mini James Harden emergency pod. It wasn't an emergency. We had this pod scheduled anyway. There's no emergency. Don't get it twisted. We're taking the break. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we're back. We've talked the Harden trade to death. I don't want to talk about it anymore until we see him suit up in a Clippers uniform. Until his January trade request. That's funny. Uh, all right. For now, let's let's talk about what has impressed us the most in the first week of the NBA season. We're being positive on this episode, Cash. We're not doing any disappointing stuff. All I want to talk about is things that have stood out as being particularly impressive. Whether that's surprisingly impressive or expectedly impressive things that have popped off the screen and that we cannot ignore as we have consumed just a ridiculous amount of basketball in the span of these seven days. I'm starting with you, Cash. What you got? Okay, so in the spirit of kind of looking at things from a glass half full perspective and taking the optimistic view and and being positive, even though they just blew a really big lead at home to the San Antonio Spurs the night before we're recording this, and even though... Even though... you know, the durability concerns that I said were a big part of why I don't think this team is as true blue a contender as everyone else thinks has already reared its ugly head because Devin Booker's played all but one game and Bradley Beal hasn't played at all yet. I'm going with the Phoenix Suns here. And specifically, when I talk about a positive first impression this season, I'm going with the Phoenix Suns depth and defense because those are also two of the things that I said were going to keep me from considering this team as true a contender as the other three teams in that kind of tier one, being Denver, Milwaukee, and Boston. Now, through four games, yes, the Suns are only two and two. They had a really bad collapse against the Spurs last night. KD faded down the stretch after just playing phenomenal basketball for most of the game. But if you look at how the Suns have kind of survived and somewhat thrived in this four-game stretch, it's been with... A combination of the guys they added in the offseason, some of the leftovers from last season. Nurkic has been great. Uh, KD obviously doing what he does, but like they've survived with KD and depth and defense. They're sixth in defensive rating through about eight days of the season, through four games. Again, obviously we're dealing with small sample sizes here, but even if the pessimistic glass 
half-empty side of me wants to be like, well, their defense has been good because look at who's been out. I don't really subscribe to that too much because as we've discussed, Devin Booker's a much better defender than people give him credit for right now. Like he's probably more of a plus defender than people realize at this point. And Beal, fine. Yeah, he'll compromise their defense in certain ways. But I don't think just inserting Beal is going to take this team from like a top five-ish defense to a bottom five. Like maybe they'll be okay. And all I'll say is that the durability concerns obviously still there. They'll have some defensive questions to answer once they get all three of their big three in there. But strictly speaking from what the depth guys have given them, what Nurkic looks like, and what the defense looks like, I'd say my first impression so far this season is that the Suns are better equipped to combat some of the issues I thought would sink them than I believed two weeks ago. Agree? Disagree? Reading too much into things? Uh, I had Suns depth and defense on my list of things that have impressed me so far. Great mind, Wolfwood. Yeah, I think the defense element of it is actually not surprising. Like I said, before the season started, when we were talking about this team, that I thought the defense had a chance to be better than you and a lot of people were expecting because most of these fringy depth pieces that they had accumulated are defense-first guys. So it's definitely not surprising to me that in the absence of Booker and Beal, as these guys are getting you know realistically overextended a bit, that we're seeing it's on the defensive side of the ball where they've managed to have success while just basically riding KD to whatever offense they can get. I mean, this is not going to come as a surprise. This is a, a, a top-heavy team built around three stars, currently playing without two of those stars. But the offense is like completely pathetic with KD on the bench. And yeah. overall, they're 44 points per 100 possessions worse when KD isn't on the floor. But I think to your point, those depth pieces have shown me enough to make me feel like if or when this team ever does get healthy, I think their depth has a chance to look like, you know, if not a strength, then at the very least, a serviceable entity that isn't going to sink them. And I think as far as like the Nurkic stuff, we're seeing basically all of the reasons he can help and does make sense with the team. And also all of the reasons why he's a downgrade from Aiton, right? Like the the scoring has been really ugly. The the efficiency for a big man has been terrible, but he's a great screener. And I think we saw, especially in game one, when Booker was there, how helpful that was and is going to be. Great rebounder, you know, keeps the ball moving side to side as a kind of facilitator, whether it's from the elbow or on the short roll. Like all that stuff is going to be there and is going to be helpful. Then... I love Josh Okoji, man. I I just, he's such a good defender. And I've said this before. I just think if he was playing more minutes, if he was able to stay on the floor for longer, he'd be in the all defense conversation every year. Right now he's hitting his corner threes and he's crashing the hell out of the offensive glass. He's finding cuts and things like that. He's making himself viable offensively. We saw this from him last year. I wrote a whole piece about how he looked like he might be, might be, the missing piece for that starting five. But I was also skeptical and very concerned that it wasn't going to hold up in the playoffs. And it didn't really, I'm just, man, I just really want it to, I want him to be able to be part of the equation because there are so many things that he does so well. Dude, the way he flies in for rebounds alone. Like I know it's a really little thing. No, it's it's, yeah. 
like, it's not just the, how active he is on the glass. It's the way he flies in for a rebound. Like, this might sound lame, but Josh Koji is one of the most entertaining rebounders in the league, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I love watching him play. I love the energy he brings. So, yeah, I hope he can he can kind of remain part of that uh, equation. And, like, I think Jordan Goodwin has looked pretty good playing on ball with the second unit. Eric Gordon had a really rough start, but he's come on pretty strong lately. Utah has had his moments. Like, Nas Little's looked good. And we've barely seen any of Keita Bates-Diop, who I do think can be a real contributor at some point. So, yeah, I'm I'm with that, man. I think that their defense is not going to look as good as it's looked when they're back at full strength and, and Beal and Booker are playing big minutes. But I think the fact that they have all these defensively capable role players who, in at least a few cases, look like they can be viable offensively, enough at least to stay on the floor in high leverage, that's been encouraging to me. And, uh, you know, again, it's just a question of, can this team get healthy? Can they stay healthy? Then we'll really see. But I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to talk about the Nuggets because even a healthy Suns team, I'm just, I know it was a bold prediction, but I'm still regretting picking them to win the West because I just don't see how anybody is touching this Nuggets team. Like the way that they have come out, like no championship hangover whatsoever, just so effortlessly dominant. Like they look like they could do this shit blindfolded. I, I saw, I think, I, I think it was Matt Moore who tweeted, they have been tied or trailed for 10 minutes through four games this season. Their offense is such a well-oiled machine. And what always impresses me about it, and even more so now, because I think, like, I think Murray has honestly upped his playmaking, but it just feels like they can run actions two guys three guys four guys in any combination Jokic has to be one of those guys to be clear but like any combination of like two or three guys running action is like dynamic and totally lethal with multiple guys who can flare out and shoot who can dive to the rim and it's just like it's automatic it's unbelievable I don't even know what you do as a defense honestly like the only exception I cited this in their opener against the Lakers because they did it a couple times and it just felt like a like wasted possessions but like empty side two-man actions between Gordon and Jokic are the only ones where I'm like you can probably ditch those because like there was one when Gordon dribbled the ball up the floor to an empty side with Jokic posting up and LeBron was guarding guarding I'm putting that in air quotes guarding Gordon but he was like he was fronting Jokic and AD was right. Like they were sandwiching Jokic and LeBron was nowhere within 20 feet of Gordon and that play didn't go anywhere. Another one they they ran, LeBron just like went, they ran a pick and roll. LeBron just went so far under the screen. It was a joke. I think, I don't think they need to run those, but anything else, like a lot of people pointed this out, but they ran the same split action with Jokic, Murray and KCP five times in a row to put away the game against the Lakers on opening night. And that's just one of like any combination of guys they can use in very similar split action. Like Jokic, Gordon, Murray, always lethal. They'll run it like basically out of horns with Jokic getting the ball at one elbow. Then Murray and Gordon basically screen for each other. And the defense doesn't know whether they want to switch it. 
if two guys go with Murray, Gordon dives to the rim and gets a dunk out of it. If even for a second, somebody bumps down to like take away Gordon on the slip, Murray pops out and hits a three. It's just like, I don't know what you do. I really don't. And, and like the big thing to me is their defense also looks really good right off the bat, which it didn't last season. And we're still seeing them mix up their coverages, which I very much like to see. Their base is still to have Jokic at or near the level. But like last season, they're playing him in drop a lot more frequently than they did in years past. And we saw how important that was in the playoffs last year, having the versatility of coverages. And then the other thing is some really solid early returns on their young depth pieces. Like Christian Brown looks fantastic at both ends and his play is the biggest reason why they're not feeling the loss of Bruce Brown right now at all. And then, man, some really impressive flashes from Peyton Watson, just incredible defensive energy and activity level and awareness. And and just like the bench in general, right? Not just the young guys, but like Reggie Jackson <laughs> looking awesome. And it's like, if you want to boil it down to one stat, they have a plus nine net rating with Nikola Jokic on the bench, Cash. Have they finally cracked it? They can survive with Jokic on the bench? Like, this is, I, I just, they look like such a juggernaut. Yeah, so uh, one thing we're definitely going to overlap with most of these uh, in, in kind of things that impressed us in the first week is a Nuggets well-oiled machine is what I had as one of my <laughs> topics, just as you had Suns defense in depth. But no, like... Great I podcasting, man. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it other than this team is a well-oiled machine. They are, one, obviously they have, like, fine, maybe not everyone has them one, maybe some people have them two. Like, I, they have who I think is the best player in basketball right now on the planet. That's a big part of it. But between Jokic, the continuity now through the years, how seamless all the players that they bring in around him are. And also credit to all those guys, like whether we're talking about an Aaron Gordon or the way Jamal Murray plays, like everyone kind of falling in line in a way and understanding the rare opportunity they have to play with a player like Nikola Jokic, that these players kind of just like fill the roles that are necessary for them beside Jokic and look obviously in the case of Murray that's still a very important role but you know what I mean like all these guys buy into this team for attitude but it's a lot easier to do that when Nikola Jokic is a superstar at the middle of it and it's just like you talked about some of these passing possessions where or, or these possessions in general where it looks like they could do it blindfolded and in their sleep yeah it's just like they move so well together on the ball off the ball screening they just move like a team and operate a team that all five guys on the court and probably all 10 guys on the bench know exactly where every single teammate is supposed to be, is going to be, where the ball's going, where that player should be. Like, we're getting close to basketball nirvana here watching the Nuggets and forget championship hangover. If anything, it feels like they're playing freer than ever. They're playing, like, I, I was kind of fumbling over my words to try to describe how beautiful watching the play has been. But like the other side of the coin is that it's not just aesthetically pleasing. It's dominant too, you know, because it's one thing to play this aesthetically pleasing brand of basketball, especially in the offensive end and just be like a good team. No, they're doing it while absolutely throttling teams. And by looking like by 
far the best team in the Western Conference. Probably still in the league. I know Boston looks great. Milwaukee will figure things out. But like right now, Denver is playing basketball at a level that like no team, I don't think at least this early in the season, is capable of. All right, what do you got next? All right, so I mean, I mentioned some of the overlap. I think you were going to talk a little Maxi and B. So I'm, I, I had Maxi as my one of my guys, but I'm actually going to leave that. I'll leave that for you to talk about if you want to. And I'll go to something that I was actually hinting at when talking about the Harden trade. But I, it's maybe a little moot now because it's going to change. I've been really impressed and quite frankly shocked by the way Russell Westbrook has played through the first four games of the season. Because again, it's not just that oh, he's been more efficient than we're used to because the shots are falling. That's not just what this is about. He's shooting less. He's taking smarter shots. Yeah, he'll throw in the occasional, like, typical Russ. Ah, why do you do in there? But for the most part, like, even last year when he first got to the Clippers and he was pushing the pace and giving them things they needed, there was still a lot of, like, the bad Russ that came with the Russ experience. And most games, you'd struggle to go an entire quarter watching the Clippers without having at least one bad rust decision to pick on. Through four games, I don't know if there's been a handful total of like bad rust possessions. That's what I was talking about when I was talking in the hardened trade stuff about how like, at least early this season, I actually think Russell Westbrook has given a team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on it what they need from the point guard position. It's been really fun to watch. And I don't want to go so far as to say like he's reinvented himself because again, I realize it's four games. It's probably going to change now when he goes back to the bench. But he, like the three-pointer, like we know historically he's been one of the worst volume three-point shooters in history. Well, he's not shooting it great this season. He's shooting it better than usual. But it's because most of his threes are now coming as catch and shoots from the corners. And he's getting to the corners and also scoring on cuts and stuff. Because as I mentioned earlier, he's moving off the ball more than he ever has before. He's not just standing there, hands on his knees, waiting for the ball back. He's making smart cuts and reads to get into advantageous spots and to also act as like a release valve for Kawhi and PG when they're facing extra defensive pressure. In general, most of his shots are coming off the catch as opposed to pull up. And it bears out not only when you look at his efficiency and the way the Clippers have played in general... Also, I'd say he's playing better defense than I've seen him play in a while. Big part of why the Clippers are the number one defense in the league so far. But all this stuff also bears out not just in his efficiency and the way the team is performing, but also in term of in terms of his like usage metrics and shot attempts and all that. So again, I realize how much how small of a sample size we're talking here, but right now, through four games, Russell Westbrook has a sub-20 usage percentage, which is shocking for Russell Westbrook. He ranks fourth on the team in shots per game, eighth in field goal attempts per 100 possessions, and seventh in usage, again, at 19.1%. For the first 15 years of his career, Russell Westbrook ranked top three in all three of those categories on every team he's ever played on. So I don't think it's crazy to like you know, read a lot into this based on how different it's been from the first 15 years of his career. I think he's playing really smart, sound basketball and the type of basketball the Clippers need from their lead guard. And it's been fun to watch because he is still mixing in some old rough stuff. Like I said, he's still getting the out in transition. He's still penetrating when he has the opportunity to picking his spots. It's been good stuff. And uh, I'm just a little bummed that I think it's going to come to an end because once Harden's there, Russ goes to the bench. I 
you know, best case scenario, he kind of keeps this going for the reserves and guys like Norm Powell. But I think what's more likely to happen is him moving to a bench role, maybe thinking he can feast on opposing reserves, having a lot more of the ball again might lead to some of his worst tendencies coming out. Yeah, I'm curious to see actually how often they play those four guys together and what that looks like. I'm not going to add too much to that just because we did talk about Westbrook in that Harden segment, and we got to keep this moving along. The only thing I wanted to point out in terms of the pace that I alluded to uh, at the top of the episode, the Clippers are top 10 in pace this season. They were bottom five before they signed Westbrook last season, and they've been one of the slowest teams in the league pretty much every season uh, since they signed Kawhi and traded for PG, uh, except actually for the first year that they were both there. But I just think uh, playing with that pace does really benefit them. And Russ is by far the biggest driver of that. So, uh, you know, we talked about the self-awareness being a, a really important part of how aging stars can fit into new teams and adapt to different roles. And I think maybe we're starting to see that from Russ after kind of uh, avoiding it for a good long time. Uh, I guess I will take it to Maxi and Embiid now since uh, you already mentioned it. The, the Sixers have a 124 offensive rating with both these guys on the court. Maxi seems to have taken another leap. I, like it has not missed a beat, basically taking the reins of the offense and becoming the primary ball handler, which is like, I, I was super high on Maxi. I have been from the start, but even I have been kind of caught off guard by just how comfortable he looks running that offense, averaging 37 and six with one turnover, shooting 56% from deep on over eight attempts per game, including cash 10 for 11 on catch and shoot threes so far. And obviously the way that he has played made the Sixers feel comfortable a like made them feel comfortable not like caving to pressure to trade Harden on anybody else's terms but I think just made them feel comfortable trading Harden without like we said getting like a significant rotation piece back in return and feeling like they're gonna be fine in the meantime as they wait to see if like the trade market for another star develops it has changed so much for them and also like it's changed the shape of their offense too for obvious reasons like he's just a much different pick and roll operator than Harden is he's not the same level of passer but I remember saying this last year when Harden was injured toward the end of the season like Embiid doesn't need much you know he needs that little pocket pass that gets him the ball on the move within like 15 feet of the bucket and then he can get whatever he wants and you can definitely see Maxi figuring out the timing uh, of those passes. And on top of that, it's just like the scoring punch, the threat of his drives and his pull-ups is a completely different animal for a defense to deal with. And part of that is, you know, the Sixers handoff game, which was a huge part of what they did back when uh, JJ Redick was there, has been completely revived. Like that, that was a dormant part of their offense the last couple of years because Harden doesn't really do that. Uh, but Maxi has that dynamism where he can, you know, he can curl or explode downhill off those handoffs. He can rise and fire. He can shift his momentum to bob back behind Embiid when defenders try to cheat to the other side by going under. So 
like that's been super effective and just stationing Maxi one pass away when Embiid's in the post makes it impossible for a defense to help from that side. And I think Embiid has gotten more comfortable and has looked really good passing out of double teams to the weak side when help is coming from, you know, like that opposite corner or along the baseline. And I give credit to the Sixers and their, you know, Nick Nurse, their coaching staff for keeping guys cutting and giving Embiid clear passing angles on those post-ups. And a, a shout out to Kelly Oubre on that front, especially. I think he's been really good at making those weak side cuts when one guy has to zone up um, two players. So that's all looked really good. Embiid is averaging seven assists a game right now. He's also been amazing defensively, leading the league in blocks. Opponents are shooting 42% at the rim against him. These two guys have just been absolutely monstrous together and... It's got Philly looking like, yeah, if, if they manage to add one more piece before the season is done, then they're right back in that contending conversation. Yeah, kind of similar to you after I talked about Russ. I don't have much to add to that just because I think I kind of said my piece about Maxi and Embiid together and the Sixers in our Harden trade blurb so I can keep us moving and give you a, a, a third thing or person or team or whatever that has impressed me so far. And that's Jalen Duran out in Detroit. I think that most people, if they would have, you're smiling. I don't know if that means. Uh, no, I mean I'm, it's just we're we're overlapping on everything. It's really nice. funny. Yeah, look, I I think that most people, if someone had told them one of the you know Pistons young players is going to pop to start the season, would have said Cade Cunningham. And listen, Cade Cunningham's played really well to start the season. But I think people would have expected if Cade Cunningham stays healthy you know, he'll be a building block for the Pistons. Jalen Duran was one of those guys where it's like, kind of, let's see what he is, what he can become. And I think him looking the way he's looked is a bigger development for the Pistons because now they look like they have another one of those guys. Jalen Duran, through the first four games of this season, as a sophomore and as a full-time starter for the first time, is averaging... 15.5 15.5 points, 13.3 rebounds, 3.3 assists, and two blocks on 68% shooting in almost 31 minutes per night. His rim running and catch radius on the offensive end creates that kind of like interior gravity where he's pulling guys with him and, and creating spacing um, on the interior the same way, you know, in a different way than guys created on the perimeter when they're shooters, but still creating spacing and and has a gravitational pull because of that. Defensively, I think he looks like he's taken a step. He looks like a, a smarter defender. The two blocks per game obviously make that look even better. Um, and I just think in general, like he looks like this really improved, smart, energetic, two-way center. And I know the defense still has some ways to go, like in terms of the instincts and scheme-related stuff, but that'll come. I just think what he's given them so far and the glimpses he's shown, more than glimpses really, like just good basketball through four games, has to be really encouraging for the Pistons. And while he is not as important as Cade Cunningham to their future, I think the development he's shown to start this season has been the most important thing for the Pistons going forward. Yeah, I think what really impresses me about Duran is he's a rim runner, right? Yeah. And he's an exceptional one. He's so athletic. I mean, he has a chance to be one of the best offensive rebounders in the league as well. But 
I think unlike a lot of the dive men that you see around the league, he's super comfortable catching the ball on the short roll. And I'm not just talking about being a passer on the short roll, which he can do extremely well. Like he's actually a a great passer. And that's one of the things that popped for me last season with him as a rookie that I didn't entirely expect. But I mean, taking two dribbles and sidestepping a guy at the rim or finishing over somebody, he looks very comfortable catching and making a move and scoring when there's somebody between him and the basket, which is something that not a lot of those kind of rim runners can do. And you couple that with his ability to be a playmaker on the move or from a stationary position, you know, operating from the elbow, things like that. He can create for himself a little bit, sort of out of face-ups or on the low block. I I just think he's, on top of the physical tools, very skilled. And yeah, like my item here was not just about him. It was kind of about how after this very, very long rebuilding process, which is not complete, by the way, like I still don't think the Pistons are making the play in this year or anything like that, but we're starting finally to see the fruits of that rebuild. Like there are signs of progress here, not just from Duran, but I think Cade, man, it's tough with Cade because you watch him and you, you see the intelligence, like the way that he reads the game, his patience, his playmaking ability. And he's very young, so I'm not like holding the the limitations against him. He's also playing an, in an environment with like suboptimal spacing. You know, they're starting Duran and Isaiah Stewart together, which again has been interesting on the playmaking front for Duran because he's making a lot of really nice high-low passes to unlock Stewart. Those two guys are playing well together, but that's not entirely conducive to Cade's development as like a pick-and-roll operator. And that's why we're seeing or that's part of why we're seeing his two-point percentage is really poor. He's not getting to the rim a ton, and he's turning the ball over a heck of a lot. But it's also just, I don't know. I, I come away, even in the games where he is obviously very impressive, just feeling a bit wanting. And maybe it's just like the lack of burst, like he's not super quick. Maybe it's the fact that the shooting hasn't been quite as good as advertised, I feel like, coming out of college. I, I don't know. Are you are you feeling these same things with Cade? Like, I, I I can see the steps that he's taking, and I can see, again, like the processing and like how well he reads the game, how good he could be somewhere down the road. But it just feels like something's not quite bowling me over. No, I completely agree. And I thought that, you know, from when I first started watching him in the NBA till now, like obviously understanding that he's young. Yeah, the injuries have kind of impacted his development. Like I understand all that, but the same way you say watching him leaves you wanting. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like there's something when you watch him where it's hard for me to see this guy becoming a full-fledged superstar. And I, again, I realize now we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but that, that's just how I feel watching. It's not that I don't think he can be a good player or that I don't think he's going to figure things out or that I don't think he's going to get more efficient and the turnovers come down, but I think there's like a really, really, really long way to go between where he is now and where the Pistons hope, want, slash need him to get to. Uh, so I also had Ivy in here who I think has looked better this year than last still to me. And again, super young. And I do think he'll figure this out, but like he is so fast 
with the ball. And I just really want to see him get better at like modulating that pace so he can use it as even more of a weapon because he is still too out of control too much of the time, misses a lot of passing reads. And even apart from like making it more difficult on himself by kind of just like always going full throttle all the time, he makes it easier on a defense as well. You know, it's like if, like, I think the perfect analogy is if you're a pitcher who throws like a 102 mile an hour fastball, if that's all you're doing, eventually hitters are going to be able to catch up to it, right? Like you got to be able to do something to keep them guessing and keep them off balance. And I think once Ivy figures out how to do that, he could be an absolute force. And then Asar Thompson, who his offense has been a mess, but holy shit, it, he's... I'm thinking back, I think like Thibel is the last guy who I can remember coming into the league and being this impactful as a perimeter defender right away. Like uh, the, the athletic tools pop, but it's like the footwork and like the mirroring and the anticipation for me where I watch him and he's the primary on DeMar DeRozan and Shea. And these are guys who like, they, they are designed in a lab to rook guys. Like guys who don't understand how to like defend at an NBA level without fouling or getting juked off their feet. They're chum for somebody like Shea Gilgis Alexander. And then you watch Asar defending him and he's like not biting on the pump fakes. He's staying square. I think that he like blocked Shea on one time and then like another possession Shea like tried to juke him and couldn't and wound up traveling. Just super impressed with his defense. So I think a lot of positives coming out of Detroit so far and you know, I don't know if it's going to last. All the more reason to spotlight them now while uh, there's all this reason for optimism. Yeah, and, and I think what makes it interesting is that they have had a positive start and they've had a positive start when it comes to their like development of young guys. It's just maybe not the young guys you expected it to be. Well, yeah, it is and it isn't. Like, I think, I mean, Duran looked promising last year. This isn't like, you know, he's definitely made a leap. This isn't a huge surprise. He was you know, a lottery pick. Like they expected him to be part of the plan. Ivy, same thing, top five pick. And again, Cade has shown some strides. I mean, that like he had a great game against the Heat on opening night. Yeah. But again, with, yeah, like there are certain things like that are still just kind of sticking in my craw a little bit, even though I have to remind myself all the time that he's like 21 years old. Uh, or I guess he's 22 now, but all right. What else you got? Uh, so that's about it from my list, except for, um, I thought this was going to have to be held for honorable mentions, but it was just going to be like Cam Thomas still scoring the hell out of the ball as if it's that small stretch. He had. When was it? Was it like January, February last year when he had that crazy stretch of scoring and then it kind of tailed off and then obviously all the attention it was It was on. later, I think. It was okay. like down the stretch of the season after they'd already traded away KD and Kyrie when he had... Yeah, like three 40-plus point games in a row or something like that. Yeah, well... Certified bucket getter. Yeah, he uh, has looked as good, if not better, through the first few games of the 2023-24 season. The guy's averaging 33 points while shooting 70% from two-point range. The three, obviously, hasn't been there yet. It's 31%, but true shooting is up also at 70%. Like... He is scoring the hell out of the ball. And again, I know, you know, there's been a precedent before of this guy having a shrewd, like burst like this and it not necessarily being able to be like a long-term thing. But when you do it to start a season 
it leads to a lot more promise. Because right now, this isn't just a burst in the middle of the season. These are his averages for the season. So, again, I thought he'd be more of an honorable mention today. Wasn't really prepared to talk about him at length. But has to be on at least your short list of some of the most impressive things, players, teams, whatever you've seen to start the season. Because, quite frankly, there aren't a lot of guys in the NBA that could even have a four-game stretch like this when it comes to scoring the ball on that kind of efficiency. It's pretty nuts let alone to have done it twice in less than a year. Absolutely. Uh, To that point, though, I mean, I'm shocked, Cash, you did not have Luka Doncic on your list because apart from Jokic, I mean, even including Jokic, I don't know that there's been a more impressive individual player in the league so far. This dude is averaging 39, 12, and 10, shooting 63% from two-point range, 49% from deep on more than 12 attempts per game, 70% true shooting. And okay, watching Luca, does anything really look that different from a process perspective? Not really. The big thing is like he's hitting all these threes, right? Like that's been huge, obviously. But I think to me, he looks just like a little bit better conditioned. And I think back to what you told me on opening night where you mentioned, you know, he doesn't have a fresh fade, so you know that he's about the right things this year. Yeah. 48 wins for the Mavs. And, yeah, I, he, he just looks to be in, like, better shape starting the season than he typically is. And I think the best illustration of that is what he's done in crunch time, which has always sneakily been a big struggle for him. Even though he's had all these moments late in games, he's not been historically the best crunch time player he he tends to run out of gas in large part because of the huge workload he carries and maybe having Kyrie there now is like helping him with that but it, it has really jumped out to me because the Mavs have played crunch time in all three of their games so far all of them are wins and in 10 minutes of clutch time Luca has 20 points on six of eight from the field five for six from three five rebounds two assists zero turnovers, plus 14. And just to, again, illustrate how big of an improvement that is, five for six from three in crunch time. You know how many threes he hit in crunch time all last season? Less than five. Not less than five, but seven all last year. And we're three games in and he's already hit five. So that's been the the big differentiator to me. And I mean, he just, he's playing out of his mind. Yeah, and just... uh as a side note, because you mentioned that the text I sent you on uh, after that opening night victory against the Spurs. Yeah, my, my theory is that Luka Doncic, who traditionally has usually had a very fresh fade, hair looking on point, especially for national TV games. I noticed during his post-game interview, his fade was definitely not fresh. Hair was a little out of whack. Now, it wasn't just because of the sweat and the post-games. Like, you can just tell he had not made... <laughs> the fade for opening night national TV game, Wemby's debut. The fact that he didn't feel that was an important thing to do. T- take it from someone who gets haircuts and fades every two to three weeks at max for Luca to cast that part of his life aside, spoke to me and said, this guy this year is going to be focused on the right things. And three games in definitely looks like that. That is my very scientific off-court analysis of Luka Doncic looking the way he does to start the season. And for me, 
the eye test, it all started with noticing an unfresh fade and unkempt hair on opening night. Something only cash could notice. <laughs> These are the scoops you cannot get anywhere else. But uh, yeah, no, he, he's been amazing. And I think also giving him a lob threat like Derek Lively. Dude, Lively is, looks great. Yeah, a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, Lively looks awesome. I guess just quickly, like let's rip through a few here that I had. Uh, and I mentioned Lively, but just rookie bigs, him, but especially Wemby and Chet. Man, those guys are good. <laughs> those guys. Chet, I mean, first of all, okay, you remember my prediction they would finish 1-2 in blocks per game. Right now, they're third and eighth. So, okay, that's that's coming along pretty nicely. Uh, I, I think they both look really good defensively. I mean, obviously, Chet, in the game against the Nuggets, just got stuffed in the basket by Jokic. What are you going to do about that? I think that the encouraging thing was, like, at least he gave some of it back to Jokic at the other end of the floor. Like, stretching him out, beating him off the dribble, dusting him on closeouts. And, like, that's... The biggest thing to me is, A, he's shooting, like, 60% from three, which is obviously, you know, it's not going to sustain. But, like, he's going to draw closeouts. And he looks so fluid attacking closeouts and just gliding to the rim. He's really good offensive player. And, honestly, defensively, it's not just about you know, blocking shots and coming over and help side and things like that. I think he has a really good understanding of like positioning and timing and drop coverage. And that's something that tends to take young bigs a long time to figure out, but he seems to have nailed it down pretty quickly. Uh, and then, I mean, Wemby, what can you say about Wemby? Guy's an alien. You know what I've been really impressed about with Wemby is like, you know, so many times with rookies, They'll have a quiet games and it's understandable. They're kind of like getting a feel for things and they're going to hit the rookie wall and all this. But like Wembenyama has had stretches of games or games in general where you feel, oh, he's a bit quiet. Don't see much of him. Not impacting the way you think. And then he has like one flurry or burst where he does things not a lot of other players on the planet are capable of doing. And suddenly like you look at the stat sheet, the box score at the end of the night and you're like, oh, like and and. This game last night where the Spurs stole that victory from Phoenix was a perfect example. Like For much of the night, Wembenyama, you know, defensively, I didn't think he was moving that well. Offensively, looked a little out of sorts. Wasn't shooting the ball well. Has like one flurry in the second half. Closes the game pretty well. And then you look at the stat sheet at the end of the game. It's like 18 points on only 14 shooting possessions. Eight rebounds. Four blocks. And I realize like obviously stats aren't everything. The four blocks maybe inflates how good he was defensively last night. But in general, it's just pretty rare for a rookie to almost be able to coast to that kind of production when it doesn't even feel like he's got his A game or has had the best game from start to finish. Like, this guy's potential is out of this world. And you see it in the production he's able to put forth even when he doesn't have that A-game. Like, that's just not typical of a rookie. That's not typical of a young player in general, let alone of a 19-year-old rookie who's played less than a handful of games in the NBA. Yeah, it's going to be really fun to just yeah. track those guys' progress throughout the season. But uh, yeah, to keep it moving here, I had to have a note about LeBron just because I, I know it's tired at this point, but I, I can't believe he's still doing this in year 21. And also, I just think it's hilarious how quickly that minute's 
restriction went out the window. Like Darvin Ham on opening night when he played 29 minutes was like, yeah, we're basically, this is the plan. We're going to keep him in this range somewhere between 29 and 31 minutes. And three games later, he's averaging 34 minutes a night. But he's also, I mean, he's averaging 22, 9, and 7. He's still an absolute wrecking ball in transition. Still making plenty of impactful defensive rotations. And, you know, him and AD are really just carrying the Lakers right now and keeping them afloat because apart from those two guys and like one good game from D'Angelo Russell, everyone on that team has been awful. Reeves has been really bad. I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) He's been, yeah. Uh, And I think if you look at the impact stats, it's like way more LeBron that's been propping them up than AD. And I know small sample size, there's a lot of noise in those on-offs, but like their offense especially completely falls apart when LeBron's not on the floor. They're 38 points per 100 possessions better with him out there. And... You just can't say it enough, man. Like, he just doesn't age. It's insane. No argument for me there. And then just a couple other quick player ones. Uh, I think if I had to pick a most improved player right now, I guess Tyrese Maxey would have to be up there. But Jalen Johnson in Atlanta, huge potential development story for that team. And... If there's one thing I'm looking at to be like, yeah, I feel good about my Hawks optimism coming into the season, it's that dude because he has come such a long way at both ends of the floor. I think especially on offense where he's just he's looking confident shooting the three ball. He is making plays in space, like has a really nice passing touch and hitting floaters on the short roll, just like doing all kinds of really smart, savvy stuff in the flow of their offense while like defending top playmaking fours, like, you know, defending Giannis basically like he's, he's looked awesome. Love what I've seen from that dude. And then um, I think that's it. Actually, that's all I had. Did you have anything else before I did not, before we call it? I did not. Uh, okay. Oh, sorry. I did. I, I had one more on the warriors. Actually. That was the other thing on top of like picking the Suns to win the West. I think I was too down on the warriors, like dismissing the possibility of them making the conference finals. I think they've looked like the second best team in the conference so far. I don't know why I I shouldn't have doubted Steph. He somehow looks better than ever. Draymond, you know, coming off of that injury that cost him all of preseason looks not much worse for wear since coming back. And I got to say, CP has fit in better and more quickly than I could have anticipated. You know, even knowing what a smart and adaptable player he is, I think it's it's looked like an awesome fit. And they also moved him to the bench earlier than I thought they would. And it's like paying serious dividends right away. He's like keeping them afloat with, you know, similar to like the Nuggets finally figuring out how to win their minutes when Jokic isn't out there. The Warriors are doing the same thing without Steph out there. And, and Chris Paul is the biggest part of that. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about my Chris Paul Warriors parlay tandem bold prediction from last week i've seen enough four out of 82 games yeah Less than also f- like some some like important steps from their from their young guys too like yeah. moody kaminga um what's their I, I can never remember their their rookie big man trace uh is it trace oh, the, jackson the hyphenated davis name. yeah yeah trace jackson davis who like we were talking before the season about okay, you're going to have Chris Paul running these bench units, just like running pick and roll over and over again, but who's going to be the role man? 
And we've seen him do it with Saric, but a lot of the issues or the concerns that I had about that, I think have borne out in terms of like neither one of them really being a downhill threat and that just being kind of a, a switchable or just containable action as a result of that. But uh, in Jackson Davis, they they have like a legit dive man and those two have looked good, I think, running pick and roll together. So um, yeah, lot, lots of good stuff in Golden State and definitely making me rethink my skepticism because I guess I'll say like a, a large part of that skepticism was because of their age. And I don't think the early part of the season is where you would expect to see age catch up with the team. So let's revisit this later in the season. But so far, all good things. Uh, so with that, we can put a bow on all of the things that have impressed us about the first week of the NBA season. So before we get out of here, Cash, I'll kick it over to you for a fan shout out. Yeah, this week's fan shout out is going to go to someone who on Twitter just goes by JD, his handles at JDACD, all uppercase. But uh, I know him as Josh De Silva. I went to high school with Josh. He now lives in Germany. But I did want to give him this fan shout out because I know for a fact, based on messages he sent me and interactions we've had online and even a couple times when he's visited over the years, that he is a very loyal Pound the Rock listener. And he tweeted at me to say that it was time for his Pound the Rock podcast shout out. He said he's been listening for years from Berlin. And he also pointed out that there are a lot of new Raptors fans in Germany since they signed Dennis Schroeder. So on top of giving Josh this well-deserved shout-out, because in addition to being an old high school friend, he is also a loyal Pound Rock listener, this is also a call-out for Josh to turn some of those new Raptors fans in Germany into Pound the Rock fans. I want to see those German numbers up in our analytics over the next few weeks. And then, Josh, I will know that you have done your job and done your work for us. But no, in all seriousness, we do appreciate you listening and being as loyal a supporter as you have been for years and even taking us with you on the go when you went to Germany. So appreciate that, Josh. Hope all is well out there in Berlin. And uh, we will throw it out there for all of our other users that didn't go to high school with us that uh, have not received their well-deserved shout-out yet. I've only got one banked. Uh, I know, I think last week it was, we told you we had kind of gotten through all of our uh, bank shout outs. I had now a couple banked after that, still one in the chamber, but still want more because there's more of you out there. We want to give you a shout out for supporting the show the way you do. So hit us up on social media, find us on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo or at Joey underscore double Y O U email me, Joseph dot Cacharo at the score.com or Wolfon at, at Joe dot Wolfon at the score.com. You can also find me on Instagram and send me a DM at Joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe don't like about the show. And I promise you, we will get you a very well-deserved fan shout-out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, I'm signing off, kicking it to Wolf on to get us out of here. I also want to know from Josh at some point how the German fans feel about... I mean, I know you're just watching like the TV broadcast over there, so you're probably not hearing the PA announcer. I need to know how the Germans are feeling about Herbie Kuhn's pronunciation of Schröder. Because I think he's doing a little too much. Yeah, but Her Herbie Kuhn, the Raptors PA announcer, having Dennis Schroeder and Jakob Pertl on the same team, like, huge mistake. legitimately, no one man should have all that power. 
<laughs> um, but uh, yeah, all right, we should we should leave all that there. So uh, thank you, Josh, and thank you to all our listeners for hanging with us on this typically overstuffed opening episode of the 2023-24 season. We'll be back next week with heaps more observations. But for now, we're getting out of here. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. 